Hello, everybody. Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, aka Ilana Brooklyn. And joining me tonight is a guest who I've had on the show before, but who hasn't been on for a really long time. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with her. And that is Alex DeCampi. Hey, Alana. Hey. Really happy to see you. Well, not see you. Yeah. I'm happy to hear you. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, uh, it was, it's funny because we were like, I don't want to be on video. I'm like, it's okay. We can't be on video. But now I'm sad that we're not on video because it would be nice to see you. It's true. Um, for those who aren't familiar with her work, Get get your act together. Here's the short bio. Alex DeCampi is a thriller writer with an extensive backlist of critically acclaimed graphic novels, including Eisner-nominated heist noir, Bad Girls. Her most recent books were pulp horror graphic novel, Dracula Motherfucker, from Image Comics, sci-fi thriller, Maddie, Once Upon a Time in the Future, co-written with Duncan Jones, and True War Stories, an anthology of soldiers' deployment tales. She's also released her debut prose novel, The Scottish Boy, from Unbound in May 2020. Uh, this year, her second novel, Heartbreak Incorporated, comes out, as does YA graphic novel The Backups from First Second. Catch her action thriller, Bad Karma, serialized on Panel Syndicate. She also writes for TV and film, including Toonami's upcoming Blade Runner anime and more. She is on most social media as Alex DeCampi, D with an E. Uh, she lives in New York City with her cat, her kid, a dog, and a cat. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And it has been a year. Like you have been putting out great quantities of content. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of our listeners might not know that you don't only write, you also letter your comics. Yeah, I'm I'm probably one of the few non- cartoonist letterers. I mean, you know, cartoonists who write and draw and they usually letter their own work. Right, um, right. There are a couple of others around, but uh, I started doing it just simply in early days with Valentine. I didn't have any money to pay anyone and I wasn't going to ask someone to letter this massive thing for free because I'm not a jerk. Um, <laughs> and so I figured out how to do it my, on my own and I've carried on doing it on my own because now it's become part of my process. I know just how much finessing and design work I do directly on the art to uh, fix past dialogue problems, to, to do things better, to make the sound effects really sort of bed in nicely to the art. You know, there's just so much work I do when the, the, the page is actually in front of me in Adobe Illustrator that I... I just couldn't do if I handed it off to someone else. And there are wonderful letters in comics. I mean, there's so many great ones. Um, I'm kind of a mediocre one, but I can't let go because <laughs> how would I tell, you know, um, Taylor Esposito, like, who's, who's a great guy, you know, or Simon Boland or like any or Jim Campbell or any of the other great letters. Like, how could I communicate that? Like, oh, well, actually, I'm going to add a, like randomly add a sound effect in there, but I'm going to take this one away. But it should be like that. Like, it's just it, it would be such a nightmare. The, making the lettering script would take me as long as just lettering the book at this point. Right. Because your, your thoughts about what it should do are that complicated at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's that it's much fun. I, I enjoy it. I, it's a very Zen process. It, when, when my brain was really dying in like August, September, October, I was just lettering books and it was such a nice thing to do because it was very visual and um, uh, kind of relaxing rather than creating the story from whole cloth. I was, it was like doing the final embroidery on the story. Bill, Bill Sienkiewicz, and he was saying that he likes getting hired to do inks sometimes when he just wants someone to hire him for his hands. I was like, dude, well, I'm glad that you like doing inks because you're the best. <laughs> but, yeah, really. 
Um, but you know, I feel like I, I'm not saying I could, I could like pick your lettering, you know, out of the dark myself, but I feel like there is a sort of sense that I get to it now and then I recognize it. So, oh yeah. I mean, it, it, I use about four balloon fonts. Um, all the balloons are hand drawn. So they're just a little bit more organic, which works well with most of the art. And there's just a more, all the sound effects are these like very non comics fonts sound effect fonts they're just you know standard Mm -hmm. like slightly grunge sans serif stuff um it varies from book to book one of the first things excuse me one of the first things i do when uh i start lettering a book is figuring out what the balloon font is and that kind of tells me a lot that encompasses dialogue font encompasses a lot of how i feel about the book and the look i'm trying to get um and then establish a few sound effect fonts that i'll use throughout the book um, one of the challenges with Maddie was because we had some very, very different artists on there was almost picking an individual style for each artist. I used one balloon dialogue font most of the way through, um, changed it for Simon Bisley because it's biz and you yeah. need something a little more like with a little more homfa to it than, you know, good old basic Moritat, which is one of my favorite comic craft fonts. Um, but, you know, lean very heavy on uh, Bebus New as a sound effect font for Dylan Teague, but then was using like Hitchcock for Lorenz. Um, and gosh, um, what was I using for, uh, for like James Stokoe? I can't even remember. Um, Annie Wu, I used a lot of brush fonts because it worked really well with her art style. Um, you know, so, so each artist had their own little, subgrouping of sound effect fonts that that worked well with their art style and could meld into their pages nicely um and that yeah. that's a really important consideration for me as i as i do my work um and there's know, a lot I, of I sound like effects weird in that striving book. To, like to be invisible and like that's something that's always been there in my work i'm trying to disappear um which, you know, I think you see all that also. I, well, with Maddie, you know, I was essentially helping bring, bring someone else's story, fully realized story to comics. And Duncan was a great collaborator and let me change a bunch of stuff, like fairly minor stuff. But, you know, I, I had a lot of creative freedom that I, that I might not have had with another person. Um, mm. And uh, with True War Stories, that was a book where I truly disappeared because I didn't write a single story. I adapted about half of them, but I didn't write any of the stories. But my, my hand is everywhere in that, but it's also nowhere. Oh, yeah. So explain to our listeners about True War Stories, like what that process was, what that book is doing, because it's um, really impressive and kind of amazing that I don't think anybody had quite done a project like that before. Uh, it's a, a graphic novel anthology of autobiographical stories of U.S. service people, service members abroad on deployment and that deployment can be to a war zone and it can be to a beach in the Philippines. Uh, both happened. Um, uh, it's, you know, I have a lot of friends in the military and both in the British and, and the American military um, and a lot of veteran friends. And, you know, you sit around, you, like you hang out with people in the military and veterans long enough and you, and you hear stories and they're not the stories you think you're going to hear. It's not like fucking extraction, you know, like I'm a white guy and I shoot brown people and that's entertainment. No, 
Um, it's usually like dumb stuff. It's, you know, having, having diarrhea in the middle of a desert and like what to do and, or, you know, something went wrong with the tank and it was exciting. Um, it, they're usually very self-depreciating, very funny, dry stories about just this, the weirdness of military life. And in telling the stories, some, some, some of, some of them are trying to process that. Um, but we don't see those stories outside of people who are, connected to the military in some way. Um, you know, most stories of uh, service members are in some way propaganda um, mm-hmm. when they're presented. They're either presented for patriotism or they're presented to, 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 to show that involvement in the military is a bad thing or something. Very, very little do... Do soldiers simply just get to tell their stories in a public forum the way they tell their stories in a bar? And that's all we were trying to do. Like I, I reached out to a bunch of people, some old friends, some new, uh, with my co-editor, uh, Kai Krumbar, who's a who's a um, Iraqi war veteran herself, um, 10 years, uh, mostly in military intelligence. Um, she uh, disabled. Um, she has a TBI. Um so we reached out to our friends and just said, do you have a story to tell? And can you, and, and it's up to you to choose what story you tell. Like you just have to give us a couple of sentences to, to so we can approve it just to make sure it, it fits in and we think it's a good story. And then you tell it in any way you want. You can try to write a comic script and we'll work with you on teaching you how to write a comic script. You can write it in the body of an email like one person did. You can write it on a Word doc. You can make it really nice with like photo ref in there. And people did all sorts of things. And we turned all of them with Kai adapting about half of them and I'm adapting the other half um, into these comic stories that range from six pages to I think our longest is like 26 pages. Um, and whatever you think this anthology is, it's just not. It's kind of like humans of New York, but like humans of uniform. Mm. Um, you know, the first story is a very, you know, sort of traditional um, Afghan foiling a, uh, a bomb attempt story. The next story is a Viet, and also foiling a bomb attempt against the base story, but it's a Vietnam story and nobody wears shirts and they're all smoking weed. Um and you know, then there's a there's a, a a trans soldier's story. There's you know there's stories about running into your interpreter um, from Iraq years later in another situation. You know, a guy that you thought was probably going to get killed when you left at some point because it was such a dangerous job. You know, it it's just there are these wonderfully. Ex- I mean, there's a story in there called Brothers about finishing a really hairy deployment in Afghanistan and then meeting the half brother that you like never really knew because he was older and, you know, your your mom remarried and stuff. And it's one of the most all encompassing and most heartfelt and interesting stories about the, about, but just family life that I've ever read. And it's incredibly Mm -hmm. nuanced and it says so much in it's short, short. It's, It's like one of the best comic stories I've ever seen. And this is by a guy who's never written a comic story before. And we worked with the um, our our authors. We paid all our authors because a we're not again we're not assholes. So I, the book took me three <laughs> years to get out because I couldn't find anyone willing to give me an advance, except Z two to pay people for their art. Even though it's a charity book, you know the contributors should be paid. And 
A lot of mm-hmm. these folks are interested in, in writing careers. And the fastest way that you convince somebody that they they have validity as a professional writer is to pay them for their writing. And so we did that. And we kept in touch with everybody, you know, throughout the process, they had checks over everything um, from, you know, when we adapted to script to uh, pencils and line art and colors. And that was really important because there's a lot of detail in, in military stories. Um, and Kai could pick a lot of things up, but that I couldn't because I'm, you know, pure civilian. Um, and people were very generous with photo ref and just, you know, it was a really wonderful collaborative experience bringing these stories to life. And, you know, I've, I've been involved in a lot of anthologies and I've read a lot of anthologies and this one, like the, the, the strength of the stories, strength and variety of the stories throughout it is really just Kai and I kept messaging each other. We're like, we can't believe it's so good. Like it's all like, they're all good. They're all really, really good. Um, and uh, we're just really proud of it. it. It's out now in comic book shops and from the Z2 website. Um, and you can, and it was a Kickstarter. Um, and you can get it in shops properly in March. If you want it now, Z2 website, it's in the warehouse. You can buy it, buy it for your dad. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I joke I, that um, it's like the best dad gift of the, of, of, of the season, but I'm, I'm also not joking. I'm apparently the, I am, I'm the comics dad friend who makes the dad books. I love it. I mean, I there's definitely a consistent theme through a lot of the work you've done has been with stories with veterans and talking about the nature of their lives when they get back as well. Well, with bad karma, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess you know I'm obsessed with bad karma. Um, I'm, I'm we really were, pleased because a lot of people, um, it's hard to get notice for digital comics. I was really sad because like um, Brian Vaughn did this big thing when Ed Brubaker put his comic out um, about it launching on panel syndicate. And then he did this big thing with Donny Cates. And I'm like, I am your only female writer. Like you could maybe say something about me. Like just maybe. Nah, nah, it's okay. Um, the, but yeah, yeah so- no, right. I, like I wrote a review for graphic policy of bad karma and it's like the only thing I wrote during the election cycle, basically, because <laughs> I was like, had so many feelings. Um, I, I, I want to finish talking about war, true war stories before I, I talk about bad karma, because if I just talk about bad karma, we're not going to talk about anything else. But okay. um, with true war stories, one of the things I loved was the story from the Jewish soldier um, and the way he connected with the other Jewish soldier there who he, who, who was in, um, who, who had been injured. Yeah. Yeah. And that story just like, just really got me. Um, and, and Sam Hart, like I, yeah. we specifically were looking for um, a Jewish art, a li- Jewish line artist, because mm. you know there were parts of uh, you know the 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 Shabbos service that like I never would have been able to explain Gaza as 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 a goy to to the right to do correctly, and I wasn't going to put all that on Benari. And Sam Hart raised his hand. Um, and said, I'm Jewish. And then he sent designs back and he's like, well, I want to lay out some of these pages, like a page of the Torah. And we were like, that's brilliant. You know, so, so yeah. finding people like we, we made a real effort, you know, the, the artist who drew our, our, our trans soldier story is non-binary themselves. You know, we made a real effort to just f- create little teams of people who who would like each other and would get along in a way um, and would feel comfortable with each other. It was really important to me, like the, the comfort and of, of my writers and our support of them was like my primary consideration throughout this whole thing. 
you know, it, it had to be a good experience for them. They had to be supported. That was it. I the story that that was from the trans soldier. I you know I know a lot of queer people who were in the military, especially including trans people. And when I saw that first page with the, the with, with the the uh, the POV character being depicted as a, a bird, I knew I was like, oh okay, this is definitely going to be a story about you know this is this is this is how you're going to be handling the person you know pre transition and then. And the very end of of her story, when she's able to like live the life she wants to, you know, is when she's finally drawn as a person. And I thought that was like really beautifully done. And but also like her whole story of her period of time of deployment is like it's hilarious. It's really funny. Like she's a funny writer, and it, there's so much that isn't just a, yeah, there's a lot of it that's about being trans. But she does a really good job about explaining, you know what it was like to be trans in the military, but also there's so much in there that's, that's just about being in the military as a person, you know, that's mm-hmm. just funny. Um, and we obviously were looking, you know, we had a long talk specifically about that story with, with Annie, with the author and with Kai. Um, and I was like, please look at good night, pun pun. <laughs> so, mm. and we were, you know, we, we didn't, we, we wanted to um, not, you know, show something that might be triggering to people or to her in terms of her pre-transition self. Um, and that's why we thought of of the eagle, because obviously the eagle is obviously a symbol of the Air Force. And the eagle, the bald eagle is one of the few birds with non-gendered plumage. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Also pigeons. Yes. Um, we weren't going to draw any as a pigeon. She's an eagle. She's not a pigeon. I love it. I mean, yeah, I thought it was really well done. And also just the whole period and time in which she, she served is like, you know, like the, the people do people serving pre-Iraq and like post Soviet union. That's when a lot of my peers were in. And yeah. uh, well, I, no, they were older than me, but we were still friends from the goth scene basically. Yeah. And so it was sort of like, Oh yeah. All that random ass shit in Germany. And like getting your hand broken and nobody fucking actually listens to you. This is all like, yes, this is why I would never in a million years have been able to to like live like like that. And, and the stories are so powerful. I mean, one of the other things that's just so great is like the the range of the kind of experiences that people have had in there and um just really the diversity. Because I just I hate how military history gets talked about as like this strictly male domain. And obviously, you know, you're a writer who's done tons of work in stories around soldiers, like consistently through her career. And, you know, like you're, you're doing them yourself because that's, that's how you're going to be able to tell those stories because, you know, you're not a man. So like, clearly you could have nothing possible to say on this topic. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun coming at those stories from the outside um, on the fictional side, because, you know, there there are a lot of tropes that that, uh, that a lot of men just accept um, that have, I feel especially have come to light for a for a lot more people um, a privilege during this year because of the protests um, that stories about white guys running around with guns have to be handled a lot more well could be handled a lot more carefully or possibly just not written at all <laughs> right now <laughs> um like a friend of mine was was like was, was saying he's going to write sort of a John Wick style thing and I'm like oh 
please don't, <laughs> like, or yep. just not, you know. We've you seen a lot of this don't need in, to? in yeah. Chinese cinema yeah. where the emphasis is, is changing from, um, and this is partially government-led in China, but it's also, I think, partially just everyone is very tired of, of, pe- of people with privilege with guns being able to do the violence and not have any real repercussions on themselves. Um, and so there, you're seeing a lot of Chinese films with the main characters being emergency response teams or, um, you know, uh, 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 teams sent in to like rebuild a place or like, you know, disaster response teams, not, you know, spies or, or, or vigilante type stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot more to be done. I mean, going over to bad karma for a minute, one of the conceits of bad karma is these guys are, are a not, not the fat, you know, the infallible, like really strong heroes whose only, whose only, like whose only sadness is their wife was killed. And therefore <laughs> their role now is, is to avenge the dead wife. Um, the wife is still alive. She divorced Ethan's dumbass because Ethan as, is, yeah, as would anyone should divorce yeah. Ethan, do not marry Ethan. Um, yeah. He, yeah, he has a lot of shit to work out and he's never going to do that. Um, so our antiheroes are properly antiheroes. Um, they're both disabled and they're trying throughout the entire book to not kill people. You know, that's like, they're, they're not like, we got to break in and shoot everyone. They're like, how do we do this while not actually harming anyone via the skills that we have? And that was just so much fun as like, it, it just makes me a lot more invested in the story rather than having to write lots of people getting killed, uh, which I think is, we've had enough of in 2020. I, for those who aren't familiar with Bad Karma, it's an action story about yeah two military veterans who have both been you know abused and abandoned by the government who realize that a young black man is about to be killed for a, 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 an assassination that they committed. Like he was the, he he was the person who was, was you know arrested and found guilty of the crime, but they know that they did it and they want to get him off because he's innocent and um, discover that there's a whole system around keeping this young black man uh, as the fall guy for the military industrial complex. And um, it's, it's an action story. It's also very funny in times um, like just really character driven uh, and just truly a pleasure to read. And I, I had the, I had the, I was lucky enough to read the full script way back in the day. So I, I know what's happening um, and I'm not going to give any of that away, but um, I just, it's it this is such these are such wonderfully written characters it's so important that the wife is not like a nag and everyone hates her she's like the ex-wife and you know why she's the ex-wife and she's trying and she has her own sense of humor and agency and the relationship between the two main character guys is like really rich and complex and wonderful and um yeah yeah cheryl's really fun to write cheryl's another one where like women in action movies are either there to be rescued or they are successful, you know, they're hot, but they're successful doing things in a male way. Like they're hot and they sed- they seduce, but they can like fight and shoot and kick and stuff like that. Um, and one of the, I, I don't feel it progresses the cause of women to have the only women characters presented as equal when they're essentially presented as having 
male characteristics. I mean, gender roles are, are, are bullshit anyway. Like they're, they're a societal construct, but you know, if we, if we only say like woman main character good when woman main character could actually be man, be, be like man with boob. No, no. Um, yeah. Like I think we have to value other experiences of the feminine um, because we're not really valuing women as main characters when they're interchangeable with male characters with a boob job. Um, Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I really tried to do with um, Cheryl, who's the ex-wife character who I love, um, you know, her, she has a realistic, I tried to make her relationship with Ethan really realistic. Like they can set each other off in a hot second. Like they can walk into the room and be yelling at each other in like, they, they know all each other's shortcuts basically. Um, but also there is like, they did spend, they had two kids, they spent a lot of time together. So there are, you know, there is kind of a a baseline level of affection. So as well as the shortcuts to getting each other angry, um, they're, they're able to communicate in other ways in shortcuts as well. You know, they're, they, they, they're, you, you know, Cheryl makes a joke about like, um, a card that says, um, I love my army wife on it. And like, you can tell it's probably a joke that they've been making for 15 years to each other. Um, but she doesn't, you know, she, she's, she, the boys are the ones with a shoot, shoot, fight, fight skills. And she has a lot of other skills that complement them, but she is, but she's never like, she's never magically going to pull out a gun. And it turns out she's as good a sniper as Sully. Like that would just be wild. That would be dumb. Um, (laughs) You know, she 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 runs that show in a very real way. Like she absolutely runs those boys, um, and yeah, and you have the feeling she's run them since they were like fifteen years old. You know, she's just yeah been that person, um, and it's it's just wonderful for me to let her be, you know, this person who cares about her appearance, but she spends the entire film, the entire book in like yoga pants and a push up bra and and a Patriots hoodie. Cause that's who she is. Um, and she's just like, she's, a, she's just feels like an, a kind of a normal person caught up in this. And I really like that. I, I don't, I'm, I don't tend to write a lot of traditional female heroes because I'm bored with the way they're expressed so often. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to writing these like stories with male protagonist, as you and I have often discussed, women are never given a platform to do that unless we create the platform ourselves. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah we don't, we're not going to get asked, you know, there's no one's going to be going to be like, Hey, you know, and the, the, just shouting out to, um, to D kind of right. D kind of and Ryan, Howe are the art and Ryan, how Ryan's yeah. the line artist. D is the color artist. They are absolutely fantastic. I mean, Ryan, a lot of the book is very, uh, some of the book is very broad. There's a lot of broad action, but there's also a lot of subtle reaction shots mm-hmm. um, where you're looking at the change of emotion on someone's face and the ch- and their body language. And these are like two disabled characters. So, and they have very different physicalities. I mean, Ethan has a lot of limitations on his physicality. He's, he's um, uh, got a below the knee amputation on his left leg um, and a lot of mobility challenges. Otherwise, um, because of a an, an explo- you know a, an explosion that we never actually flash back to because because it's not why? about the yeah. trauma it's about yeah. coping with the trauma um and we want to keep it more you know people can imagine their own trauma within that if we don't specify exactly what their trauma was but it's you know it's pretty obvious to figure out 
the broad strokes of what happened. Um, and, you know, Ryan's been so good on the little details, like stuff like, you know, Ethan's shoes never have laces. They have the Velcro tabs because his fingers right. can't do laces. Like, you know, we've talked through a lot of this um, and Ryan's done some really stunning work on his own. Um, and Dee just makes it all look so elegant with his colors. Like, I'm I'm so blessed to have them on the team. If you're interested in bad it's, karma, yeah. it's pay as you like. You can actually take it for free. Like, this is a shitty year. It's fine. You can put zero. We never find out. Um, it's on Panel Syndicate along with a lot of other cool comics. Um, and uh, there are three episode, three chapters out now, which is over 100 pages of comic. And we're just finishing chapter four. It'll be out, like, probably first or second week of January. And I really love it, as you know. Um so I'm, I'm, and, and, and folks, what I, I was going to say is like, this is burying this deep in my pot and the podcast where I say this, but, um, I think sometimes there's web comics and the art is sort of graded on a curve. Uh, I am not grading this art on a curve. It's really excellent. It is just as detailed and complex as, you know, you could possibly want in this for a story. So even if you're normally like web comics, Eh, like no 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 you you should absolutely read this it's it's really it's really gorgeous and excellent and speaking of gorgeous and excellent jumping from stories of soldiers to stories of dracula i'd like to talk with you a little bit about dracula motherfucker which is an exploitation horror fantasy story that you and the wonderful erica henderson put out this just recently a uh, graphic novel um and uh, it's very imaginative, and I love like you and Erica working together on a, on a super psychedelic horror story. Tell me how that project came together. I had a bunch of other. I actually wrote it like almost two years ago. Um, just I was. I think I'd actually just finished writing Bad Karma, which is two hundred and seventy five pages. It will eventually see print, by the way, in a giant doorstop edition. Once we're all done, seven chapters. Nice. Um, I finished writing something else as well. And I just had done, been doing all these long, long, long books. And I thought, I just want to do something short and fun. And so, you know, I, I did all my grindhouse books in like 2015 and 2016 with, um, with Dark Horse. Um, and, uh, sorry, I'm watching my, my pit bull get down very carefully on the chest next to the table, uh, next to the bed, <laughs> past the laptop that's propped there. Good boy. Um, uh, I just want to do something fun. I, I'd always, I've always loved exploitation stories and exploitation cinema. Um, and I'd done a whole series with Dark Horse um, called Grindhouse a while ago that, that did very well. Um, and I really liked the kind of 48 to 64 page length. And then I was watching Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips put out these really cool 72 page hardbacks through image. And I thought I would love to do something in that format because you can mail it places like you can order it from a bookstore very easily. It racks spine out. It's, you know, and it's short enough that an artist can take on a 72 page project without it being like this awful burden, mm. especially if it's on an image, no advance deal. I know some people get advances at image. I don't get an advance at image. Um, so we, I wrote it and then, um, it was, someone else was supposed to draw it and they didn't. Um, and then they finally said, I'm just too tied up on other things. And I said, fine, you know, still someone who's still a close friend. Like it's, it's not, not a big deal. This stuff happens all the time. Um, and then I messaged Erica cause I thought Erica, I, 
uh, Erica loves horror, and I, I knew her style could do a lot more than most people had pigeonholed her to do via mm-hmm. Squirrel Girl. And honestly, if you can do comedy, you can do horror because they're the same thing, um, really, at, at the root of it. Um, and she 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 read over it, and she normally like develops scripts with people, so this was weird to ask her to look at something that was all finished. She She read over it, and like the same day, she's like, yes, we're doing this. And she finished it quite early on in the year, which was good considering of all the other books I had due. I lettered it. We put it out. And, you know, it was just... I there were a lot of vampire books this year and everyone sort of seems to be talking about ours and that that makes me really happy in a way because I I feel like we'd really gone in and like reexamined what Dracula meant in a way and how to portray Dracula so it was a much more deep like yes it's a book called Dracula motherfucker that's a 72 page pulp noir romp okay like let's not let's not dress it up too much it is a fun book but underneath it all, Erica and I had actually spent quite a lot of time thinking about how to express Dracula in a way that was terrifying um, and not in like some musty velvet tuxedo that just looks like it smells like mothballs. Um, and how we could do something interesting with it, like just like have something to say rather than just putting out a story because vampires are cool. Um, right. I think we were trying to make vampires uncool in a way. And the, the designs, um, Erica did again, folks, like this Erica Henderson, who you know from Squirrel Girl, and she's doing these amazing, amazing monster designs throughout the book that are super psychedelic. So, of course, I'm way into it. Um, and then also getting the costuming right, the different time periods costuming. Oh, yeah. I mean, Erica's big on research, and, and I am too, of course. So, we were like yeah. email, like she's she was mostly in charge of the setting and the costuming. Um, the Dracula design, we talked a lot about she and I, cause I came in with very specific ideas of the, the shadows and the eyes and stuff and the, the, the incorpor- incorporality of him. Um, and we, we sort of pinned the whole book around the aesthetics of super flat art, which encompasses both Gustav Klimt, which is why we started in Vienna. Also, cause I just love talking about the Meyerling incident cause it's wild. Um, and, um, and op art and psychedelic art, like we were, you know, referencing, um, you know, the sort of the, the the wax light show psychedelic art of the late '60s, early '70s in the book. We were referencing Peter Max, you know, Bridget Riley in places like all like there was a lot of experimenting with, with 2D as a concept of flattening things out. You know, so so much of comics is trying to look like movies and give things depth and stuff and like fake blur. And like, we're just like, no, we're going to make it really, really flat and decorative. Because I love the way in art like Klimt, you have something that's very realistic and then something that's dead flat and doesn't let your eye like cope with it in any other way other than as a block of flat design. And, and I love anime flat influence and I well. love decorative. So yeah. that's like, these are good yeah. choices. <laughs> yeah. Um. And we were also, yeah, we were influenced by some of the stuff in, there's an anime called Madoka Magica, where it's kind of like a deconstruction of the magical girl trope. It's really wonderful. Um, And when they go to fight witches, they go to fight witches in this really weird, like Japanese super flat 2D art environment that's incredibly like postmodern and aggressive in a way that you wouldn't expect a cute anime about magical girls to be. 
Um, and it's like really, really fine art led. And I was like, I just saw that and I was like, wow, like this is just a, such a cool way of doing things. Um, and a lot of the design of Dracula was based on some of the uh, trans transmorphing um, design, monster design from some horror anime, you know, pride in full metal alchemist brotherhood um, parts of uh, Helsing where Alucard goes sort of incorporeal and, you know, on and on. And I like that the, uh, the character who's being pursued by Dracula and vampires through a lot of this is, you know, a, a, a man, right? He's a man and he's a photojournalist. And yeah, exactly. It changes the dynamic of the story a lot. Dracula and gender, like vampires and gender is a really, really interesting discussion. Um, you know, they, they, it stands for so much. I mean, the original Bram Stoker Dracula was an urban sexual predator um, who took women against their will. Um, and there's a whole bunch of Victorian stuff built into that. Um, you know, Lucy Westenra, uh, Mina Harker, both taken against their will. Um, Lucy, the original, like, you know, I'm, I'm too sexy girl who gets nailed first. Um, thereby starting a great horror film tradition. Um, get your kid off. You're going to die. Um, and I wasn't really interested in, in Dracula taking people against their will um, because there's a lot of the way Dracula stories relate to women um, constantly in, invalidate women's agency and choices um, in that they're either taken against their will, too bad for them, they're, you know, so they exist to be victims, or, you know, Dracula is very, very handsome and they fall in love with him despite the fact that he's and somehow not seeing that he's a monster because he's handsome. Um, and that also invalidate, it doesn't necessarily, it, it gives them a surface choice, but it invalidates their intelligence as, as rational human beings, you know? Right. So, and yes, there's a whole separate conversation about like, you know, something like twilight and the idea of YA vampires and sexual penetration as a metaphor. We're not going to go into that right now. It there's like, dissertations on it it's great um you know um so what we were interested in with, with this dracula um was a the brides who have never been really well written or explained they're just there in negligees um in any form of dracula like they just like why are they there what are they doing why does he have the brides you know why is he getting more bride like I, it just none of it makes any sense um so i kind of came into this going like let's let's make these chicks in negligees work um and let's give them a reason for being, and let's give them a, a, like a reason for having made the choice. Let's make it an active choice that they decided to go with Dracula, who is not attractive. Like the petty hill that I will die on is that Dracula should not be hot. Dracula is ugly and terrifying and gross. That's it. You know, he can mesmerize you, but like, it's not a long-term thing. You know, he's not going to, he can convince you to do things short term, usually to your own detriment and rapid demise, but he's not going, you're not going to be like, oh, he's so handsome. I'm so glad he looks like Brad Pitt. I can live with him forever. No, 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 no. He's ancient. He's gross. Um, because if you look at the, 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 the men in our world that wield tremendous money and power, none of them are hot. Okay. None of them, you know, Jack Dorsey, not hot. Donald Trump, not hot, married several models, you know, um, Harvey Weinstein, I was going to say Harvey Weinstein is exactly the right, 
Yeah. The right mode. Um, and yeah. who married the gal who ran March, Mar- the fashion company Marchesa. And then we saw all the Hollywood starlets wearing Marchesa for like five years and then they divorced. No more Marchesa. Um, you know, why was she there? Like, if, if genuinely she looked at Harvey Weinstein, I forget her name, which is terrible. Um, if she genuinely looked at Harvey Weinstein and thought, he's so handsome. I'm so sexually attracted to him. You know, this is all I've ever wanted is a man who looks like Jabba the Hutt. Like, good for her. You know, I don't kink shame. If if that, if, if that revs your engines, baby, like, good for you. I somehow doubt it, however. Um, yeah. So there was an active choice that, that, that many women have historically made to tie themselves to a man who is not necessarily what they would choose for themselves in a world of ultimate possibility because of that man's wealth and or power. Um, and these were the women whose stories I was interested in telling because what do you do once you've married Harvey, once you've married the Donald, you know, and you've got the money, like, you know, look how happy Melania looks. Um, that was sarcasm. Um, yes, know, we, yes. <laughs> that, like, faking the orgasms for the rest of your life or, you know, or being doing exactly what they, you, they want you to do, but you can have all the Chanel you can carry. Like what is, when does it stop working? At what point do you decide it's over? Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of command and control in this as well. And I've, I'm a, survivor of an abusive, emotionally abusive and occasionally physically abusive relationship. So I know very much the, you know, when you leave a, a controlling relationship where you're isolated and you're, you're, you are given a pattern of behavior that you have to do in order to, if, and if you execute it correctly, if you do the dance correctly, you assume you'll get back to the place at the beginning when the person was love bombing you and showing you a lot of affection and spoiler, you won't, you never will. It's over. It's done. You're, you'll, you'll be a disappointment forever. Um, but while you're doing that dance, like when you then make a decision to leave, you become the monster. And I guarantee you this, if you speak to trauma survivors, if you speak to abuse survivors, there is a period where they very definitely were treated by like a monster by the person that they were leaving, possibly by friends and family who have, occasionally been stunningly not understanding in these sort of scenarios um, that they had, they had to go through being the bad guy for a while to survive, to leave. And that's why many people don't leave is because like, because you are suddenly the bad guy if you do. Um, and when you've been conditioned to be pleasing someone with a volatile uh, temper and, and conditioned to, to follow irrational rules of behavior um, in order to try to get crumbs of affection, then you're very unlikely to be in the mental state where you're able to choose to be the bad guy um, for a the significant amount of upheaval that it takes to leave somebody. Um, and so uh, all of this went into my, my and Erica's little pulp noir extravaganza. Um, so it, in many ways, it was a me- metaphor for abusive relationships and male privilege and power and how it's often built on the backs of women. Um, because, you know, obviously like how many men could do what they 
are doing if they had to take care of the kids or if they had to, if they were single fathers. And yes, there are single fathers doing amazing things. Yes, there are, I know many uh, men uh, who, who have been in, who have been the abused party in an, in an abusive relationship. I'm not invalidating their, their issues or their pain. I'm coming at it as a female abuse survivor and writing my understanding of the story. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's my cheerful uh, uh, Dracula story. And wildly, it is cheerful. Like I, I think, you know, sometimes yeah. sometimes the best way to write about something painful is to write about something, write about it in a genre fashion um, that talks about it but doesn't talk about it directly. I mean, we're all very very tired this year. I I can't, I don't want to read stories about real life. You know, I don't want to see Marriage Story, the film. I've been divorced twice. I know how divorces work. I don't want to see that movie. Um, right. You know, I don't want to see like film, like filmmakers or storytellers trying to convince me that life is real and life is earnest. Like I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Like you, it, that's one of the reasons that genre is so much fun. Um, and we are able to like talk and have things that are serious, but it, it isn't necessarily the same amount of emotional drain that it would be to do something like read or watch a uh, marriage story. Yeah. Yeah. Or the distancing lens of history or the distancing lens of like science fiction when you can talk mm-hmm. about things without talking about them. Yep. Absolutely. I agree. Agree. Um, and just like the, the combination of the different settings for the story are just a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I mean, there are lots of little Easter eggs. The address he gives is the, is the, the house in Sunset Boulevard. Um, when he eventually, you know, it, Erica borrows a yeah. costume from mask of the red death. Um, I fucking enjoy that movie. So that was really cool to see. Yeah. There's lots of like little things we sprinkled in there for fun. Um, there's a, there's a like a quick little showgirls reference. So we love us that I might not have caught. There's one panel when the younger bride is stepping out of Dracula's shadows. Um, that is basically the showgirls poster because we're bad people. Love it. That's fun. I mean, you got to amuse not yourself. Like, people, there's a lot of like, my people. scripts are letters to the artist, and we and, and there's often a lot of like jokes and stuff in there. Um, and Erica's great about taking those jokes and just running with them and then adding a bunch of her own. It was it was really fun to do a project just with one other person too because we just kept trading the pages back and forth and I'd like she'd trade me her color sketches, I'd letter on them, um, draft some lettering. She'd then want to draw in the sound effects rather than using my fonts, so she'd draw on top of my fonts and then give them back to me. Um, so it was this real like just fun little system. Um, I would love to see you guys do work together in the future as well. Me too. Someone can pay us, though. Yes, they should pay you guys to do it. They should pay you guys to do a lot of things also. Pro tip. Um, Well, I feel like I didn't really do as much conversation around Maddie as we should and also realized that – am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Maddie. Short for – Okay, because it's short for Maddie. Yeah. So um, that is your new very British, very sci-fi – a uh, book with um, just like a whole host of a who's who of amazing artists, including like Simon Beasley. Simon Beasley, yep, may- yep. Uh, who was filling in for someone who dropped out? Simon Beasley and and, and Glenn Fabry were were uh, folks that um, we actually contacted fairly late in the game because uh, we had younger artists in there um, who decided they didn't want to take notes. Wow, 
That seems like a poor professional choice they made there. Hmm. Well, you know, it's comics. Like sometimes that happens, you know. Um, but we had a lot of fun. Duncan and I had a tremendous amount of fun drawing up that artist list because we felt it was very much like artists, artists. Like it, it's you know, not necessarily people who were super flashy, but people who were just amazing storytellers and had amazing graphic eyes, and were very different from each other because we wanted mm-hmm. there to f- feel like there was a difference and a progression through the book, not like oh well, is this. If it's if, if people are going, oh, is it this artist again? We want that that to be like a thematic reason that we're like that this artist is then doing a callback to the scene rather than having two artists who looked a lot alike. Um, well, and everybody was lovely to work with. I mean, except for you know the, the two that <laughs> very early on were like, no, we shall not take your notes. Um, you know, I mean, I'm great friends with Glenn and his and his partner Karen now I'm probably going to go to his birthday party in in the spring providing travel is okay and we're all vaccinated um you know Simon Bisley's charming and very sweet to work with um you know everybody was a delight I mean it was great working with David Lopez again he's such a nice guy um Annie Wu's just a genius yeah um Tanchi Zanchek is is one of my all-time favorite artists there's a man who just needs to get paid like just to, to draw whatever he wants to do of his own stories. He's so good. Um, I don't know if I'm familiar with his work. Who, who is this again? Uh, Tanchi Zanchek. I will send you his Twitter handle later. Um, he's doing like a, a dark horse skull boy book or something with Jeff Lemire. He, he's done some, a bunch of like, he's an incredible artist who, who uh, gets high. He does a lot of costume design stuff. He was on the Rogue One team, design team as well, I think, with like Chris Weston and a lot of other people. Um, Chris Weston, another Maddie artist, another great guy. Um, and then he always gets hired to do these really, really forgettable, like Dark Horse type books that, like, you know, I mean, the, the scripts are fine, but he's so good. Like, he's just so on a different level from everybody else that I just, I just want to see him do his own thing in the way that like the Eminens now have the freedom to go off and do their own thing. He's very like, you know, Stuart and Kathy Eminen level of art. He's that guy. Love it. Yeah. I mean, I thought the art in this book looked so amazing. And what's also cool about it is with these range of artists for the different parts of the story, it all kind of felt like very in line with all of the great sort of British anthology style comics, even though it is telling one holistic story. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a um, editorial choice largely driven by me um, because um, Duncan had a was doing a graphic novel of Mute with, with Glenn that like kind of got slightly mishandled at Dark Horse um, and like the book never got finished and then the film came out and so the the book kind of died um, and so we wanted to turn this book around faster than normal for a 250 page book um which meant that waiting for one artist to be ready to do all of it like we would have taken at least a year to get on the right person's schedule because it's a big chunk of time and then it would have been two years to draw um so we chose to break it up between different artists to a because we could because it's a road trip film and so um story so um you know, each artist has a particular location that they're drawing. And B, just so we could get the book out, you know, 
in the reasonably near future. And, and you know, from a, pretty much a standing start, I think we started in April 2019, and the book, the soft cover just came out, and the, 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 the hardcover and deluxe copies are sitting in Long Beach waiting to be cleared by customs because uh, everything is slow because of COVID. Um, but if you're interested in buying it, it's out from Z2 Comics, so you can go to the Z2 website. I'd strongly recommend the hardcover version because it's like 8 by 12 and that was the, the, the original art size, and it's really nice. Cool. Well, you know, it's interesting because we always talk a lot about, you know, how comics and movies are not the same and you don't want to try to – you need to, like re- – respect and embrace each medium for what it's like about what it's able to do specifically and this is interesting because this is a comics sequel to things that it will not a sequel but it's like existing in the same world perhaps that uh the film existed in so like when you're when you're working on a story that is then coming from cinema which you know is something i guess is also true when you worked on things like even the the uh, predator comics. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you make that sort of switch while respecting both mediums? It's tough. I mean, I think you just have to really love and be interested in the graphic possibilities of the page and the storytelling possibilities of something that's told in pages where the reader the reader is in control of time, unlike on a on a film where you know five minute scene is always going to be a five minute scene unless you're a weirdo who has it playing in slow mo. Um, <laughs> Unless it's that scene from Basic Instinct, which was a half-second <laughs> scene, which most young boys turned into a five-minute scene. Um, uh, the old ones now. Um, you know, the reader takes as long as they're going to take to read a page so that you can influence that by how you lay out the page. You know, lots of, like a 12-panel grid page will make people read slower, a, a, a page with a lot of text and a lot of action you know, uh, turning the, turning the page to a, a splash page or a double page spread gives a great feeling of like release, especially if you've had a very boxed up, like busy page beforehand, uh, many panels to, to one panel. It feels like, you know, like, <gasps> um, so there's, so I, th- I think it takes, you know, one of the things we were trying to do with, with Maddie was to really give it a feeling of comics, you know, and do things that you couldn't really do in a film. Um, be it the different art styles, the, the, the call, you know, using art style as callbacks to scenes. Like there's a very important thematic point that's brought about almost entirely by calling back to other panels that the artists had, had drawn previously and tweaking them and re-examining them. Um, you know, the script, like the script and the, the film script and the comic script are very, very different in terms of their pacing and their and then sometimes their content um you know we looked at the film script as a starting point um and then just took it from there um it's certainly not a you know like let's just put the film script on the page it was like let's let's read this cool story and then turn it into a comics story um and I've been doing, you know, it's it's been, again, it's been a weird year of that for me of taking other stories and putting them in comics format because I was doing it with True War Stories, which was an entirely different operation because a lot of it, that a lot of the True War Stories things, because they're autobiographical, are told with a, with a ton of captions. And I'm normally that writer who in fiction, if I open your comic and I see it's like pages after pages of just captions, I'm like, nope, write a novel. Um, yep. Yep. And... uh 
And here I was like being the thing that I, I don't consider myself. I'm like, the, you know, I like silence. I like doing things in dialogue. I like avoiding exposition at all possible to the point where sometimes people feel lost in my work and I'm trying to get better about that. Um, and there I was like doing like this page with like 10 captions on it and very little dialogue um, for the autobio stuff. And yeah, I guess it's sometimes you, you just have to get yourself out of your comfort zone in, in order to learn as a writer and um, working with the autobio stories and working and putting them into an exciting graphics format and working with Duncan's screenplay and turning it into something that was absolutely like a comic and does things that only comics can do were like my big challenges this year. Oh, and, and Dracula, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it was just, this year was a lot of like getting out of my comfort zone, working with different sorts of stories that I would normally work with and trying to not make them mine because I wasn't trying to make Duncan's story mine or the soldier's stories mine. I was trying to make them the best stories they could be. Um, and my own style in some ways, what I thought of as my own style, taking a back seat to making the most coolest, effective thing I could. And so using all my skills in the service of something else, which I think is a tremendous lesson for any, any creator to, to, to go through. And it was also really, really fun. Well, that was an even better answer than I could have hoped for. So thank you for that. Um, so Alex, thank you for joining me again. And um, are we actually getting this done in like, a, like an exact hour? Are we that good? Yeah, we're that good. We're that good. <laughs> um, uh, so let our listeners know where's the best place to find your work on the internet. Uh, well, right now, if you're on Twitter, my pinned tweet is like all my books with buying links. Um, and that is... Alex DeCampi. I'm pretty much it, like everywhere on the internet because I've got this weird Anglo-Italian name, A-L-E-X-D-E-C-A-M-P-I. You know, at Alex DeCampi, you can find me there. Easy way to find all my stuff. Yeah, yeah. I always, when we first met, I was always have to like, is it D-E or is it D-I? And I would always Google to make sure that I got- It's D-E, which is um, uh, technically grammatically incorrect because- Campy meaning fields is is plural, so it should be di, unless campy is oh. referring to a specific place. At which point it would be de. Um, so I'm obviously from my family's obviously from some village called Campy. Um, well, that is inside. That is that is inside. I never was like I don't know what's supposed to be the difference between these. Um, uh, and or we just, I, or I, I we do, just like fluffed it on Edis on 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 Ellis Island. You know, like has as, been as, known to happen. Yes. Um. And uh, so again, thank you. Thank you for coming on. And you can definitely catch, check out all of the good books and upcoming work there. Um, as for my listeners, Graphic Policy Radio continues to chug forward with more interviews with your favorite comics writers and artists. Uh, also on the horizon, I have a few episodes that are going to be about Star Trek Deep Space Nine because I, like the rest of the internet, uh, we're like, oh my God, we all have to watch DS9 right now. And of course- in Shrilana fashion, I'm turning a source of enjoyment into a source of critical content that I will now share with you. Um, so those things are all on the horizon for you. And uh, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And please leave your reviews of the show on the podcast platforms of your choice. 
And don't forget to check us out on graphicpolicy.com for your comics, news, and reviews. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.